It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I was not at the state dinner last night for the president of France, but it is, you know, there hasn't been one in a couple of years. This is the first one of the Biden administration. And so it's fascinating to be reminded how much the press loves these state dinners and the fashion reviews and who is in and who is out and who got invited. And it's a bipartisan thing. I saw Kevin McCarthy was invited and Stephen Colbert. Uh, and his wife showed up. I don't have any problem with that. But, you know, Colbert has basically devoted his show uh, for six years now, I guess eight years, to being anti-Trump and then pro-Biden. And so he's rewarded with an invitation. That's how it works. You, uh, Nobody is thinking that Stephen Colbert doesn't have very strong views on the current president and the former president. But here's the Washington Post uh, on Jill Biden's dress. Um, when the French are coming over for dinner, you should probably step up the glamour. Uh, Jill Biden rose to the occasion. Uh, she wore a long-sleeved, see, I would never know these details, navy off-the-shoulder column gown, which twinkled, light-danced in the gaps between the multitude of subtle flower appliques that composed its outer silhouettes. And it goes on. And it's by Oscar de la Renta. And so we have analysis of that. Uh, traditional yet somehow sparkly... Uh, Okay, I think I've given you enough on that. And uh, moving right along here, um, look, hope you have a great weekend coming up. I just met with my staff, made about 19 changes to Media Buzz. Lots of stuff is happening, as you might expect. Um, Also, I ran into Mike Pence yesterday uh, here at Fox, former vice president of the United States. We had a nice little chat. I hope to chat with him further. Uh, But the despicable horrible, pathetic gift that keeps on giving is Kanye West. Story number one. So just when you thought, maybe you thought, maybe Donald Trump thought that the whole Dinnergate thing would finally have kind of burned itself out, what does Kanye West do? Remember, so much of the um, intense media coverage focused on the guy he brought with him, Nick Fuentes, Holocaust denier, racist, anti-Semite of the first order. So he brought him, but this isn't about Fuentes. This is about yay. Um, He goes on Alex Jones's show. He goes on a show of a guy, conspiracy theorist, who's just been convicted uh, of, in a lawsuit, who's just been held accountable, I guess I should say, since it's not a criminal trial, in a lawsuit by parents who lost children in an elementary school that Alex Jones claimed was false. So you would think that would not want to be a stop. But wait, it gets worse. West goes there, and he's just spewing more anti-Semitic, I don't have a better word than garbage, the vilest kind of garbage. Kanye says... I see good things about Hitler. Kanye says, uh, they did good things too. We've got to stop dissing the Nazis all the time. 
when Alex Jones said, I don't like Nazis. Um, he actually said good things about perhaps, if not the most notorious mass murderer in history, certainly the most notorious evil mass murderer of the 20th century. Does Kanye know about the Holocaust and six million Jews dying and the other atrocities committed by Hitler? So he goes on the show. Remember, he's visited Trump. Trump wants this thing to go away. Trump's advisors tried to talk him out of it. He knew Kanye, they knew Kanye was coming. Couldn't talk him out of it. And he goes on with Alex Jones and says, you know, I like Hitler. I see good things about Hitler. And Alex freaking Jones says, well, you know, most of the Jews I know are great people. When Alex Jones is the moderating force in the room, you've got a big problem. I, I, I just, you know, it's jaw-dropping. It's head-slapping. What is compelling Kanye to continue this anti-Semitic crusade? Is he that star for attention? Okay, then we get to the Twitter part. So then he goes on Twitter and he tweets a swastika. Yes, technically it was combined with a Star of David. But it's a Nazi swastika. So what happens is he gets suspended. Now remember, he had been sort of a permanent suspension by the previous management, which restored him to Twitter just before Musk took over. It wasn't Musk's decision, although with his amnesty that he granted to all the previous um, and permanently barred people, Kanye would have come back in any event. And it included Donald Trump, who's still not tweeting. So it says account suspended. And Elon Musk tweets. He says, I tried my best. Despite that, he again violated our rule against incitement to violence. Account will be suspended. Okay. So I don't see how long Elon Musk can continue being the chief suspension officer, but obviously with the huge international celebrity like Kanye, who is losing business left and right. Remember, he said, oh, Adidas can't do anything to me. And then Adidas dropped him. Took a while, but it happened. So he puts up the swastika. And Elon Musk says, as I just read, I'm suspending the guy. But then Kanye posts um, this uh, screenshots of what he was told by Twitter, not Elon personally. And it says, you've been suspended for 12 hours. Uh, you can go on Twitter and browse. You can send direct messages, but you can't tweet or retweet anything. 12 hours? I, what? I don't want to call it a slap on the wrist because it's not even a slap. I mean, you could go to bed, have a nice long sleep, wake up, and your suspension's over. It, how does he not get suspended for two days, a month? Something that would in, uh, encompass some kind of penalty. This is... Pathetic. 
and not just Kanye. I mean, if you do something as under, remember, he's granted amnesty to all these people. You do something that amounts to hate speech or incitement to violence. And Musk says it's incitement to violence. And you're suspended for half a day? I, I, I don't like this. I think it's ludicrous. I think it's pathetic. You know, if Musk is trying to build confidence, and remember he had the whole thing with Apple, which I talked about yesterday, and I talked about on a special report last night with Brett Baer, I'll come back to that, um, making the false accusation against Apple, saying that Apple was threatening to uh, kick Twitter out of the App Store. Why does uh, Apple hate free speech. And then it turns out it never happened. Talks to Tim Cook, says, oh, misunderstanding. Uh, Tim was clear he never intended to do this. So he accused him based on no facts. Here you have the facts. It's a big, fat, ugly um, it's just gut-wrenching to me. So I'm running out of adjectives. Um, a symbol, the swastika symbol of the Nazi regime and all of the mass murder and atrocities committed by Adolf Hitler. And Kanye throws it up there. And he's out of there for 12 hours, half a day. Oh, one other thing on Kanye. Remember... He was going to buy Parler. I mean, the guy was a billionaire. I don't know if he still is. I'm sure he's got a lot of money in the bank. And look, he's a world-famous rapper. A lot of people like his music. Why did he go down this route? I don't understand it. And then Parler puts out a statement saying, yeah, you know, it's in the mutual interest of both parties, blah, blah, blah. So now he was doing that as an alternative to Twitter before he got restored. Now he's not buying Parler. Because he's too radioactive. And how do you think Donald Trump is feeling about all this? He wants this thing to just go away. He's got his defense on, didn't know Nick Fuentes, never heard of Nick Fuentes. Uh, Fuentes didn't uh, say anything during the dinner that was horrible or anti-Semitic. And if he had, it wouldn't have been accepted. But, you know, can't, still will not bring himself to say, I denounce. I denounce. Any form of anti-Semitism, racism, Holocaust denialism. It would have been a two-day story, but he, he doesn't do it. I don't know. No parlor for you. And let's move on. Story number two, another legal setback for Donald Trump. And if you've been following this or listening to me, a little plug in there, um, I told you this was going to happen because there was a hearing before three-judge appeals court panel in Atlanta on the whole special master thing. Now, just because it gets confusing, this is not the special counsel who, Eric Garland, who actually took some questions yesterday when he was um, appearing to talk about the importance of the Oath Keepers convictions and said he's asked the special counsel um, to do this as quickly as possible and et cetera. But the special master when the Justice Department was, is, investigating Donald Trump over, one, January 6th, two, the top secret documents he took to Mar-a-Lago, 
certain judge handled that. But Trump went to this Florida judge, Aileen Cannon, Cannon, excuse me, who he had appointed. She's been on the bench for, I don't even think, two years. She had nothing to do with the case. But he went to her and said, or his lawyer said, I want a special master appointed to review all this stuff. It shouldn't be reviewed by the Justice Department. And she said yes. And that has slowed down the investigation because everything first has to be looked at by this guy, a retired federal judge, Ray Deary, with an excellent reputation. But nevertheless, what's the need? So here comes the ruling yesterday. Three-judge appellate panel says, nah, we're tossing this out. No special master. Justice Department can go back to what it was doing. Unanimous. And remember, um, there's at least one, and I think two, uh, Trump appointees on this. I'm not positive, but uh, 21-page ruling. Just shut the lawsuit down. I was never more confident I don't usually predict things because you can look stupid when it doesn't happen. Oh, what's the jury going to do? Oh, they're going to convict him in a day. And maybe not. Maybe there's a hung jury. But the questioning by all of three, these three appellate judges made perfectly clear that they had no use for this uh, special master decision by the Florida judge. Just they were just unbelievably hostile and they didn't make any secret about it. So here's what they write. It is indeed extraordinary for a warrant to be executed at the home of a former president, but not in a way that affects our legal analysis or otherwise gives judiciary license to interfere in an ongoing investigation. Uh, These three judges wrote that limits on when courts can interfere with a criminal probe apply no matter who the government is investigating. To create a special exception here would defy our nation's foundational principle that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank. They just said there was absolutely no need for this, questioning why the judge was even involved. Threw out her ruling, overturned what she had done, uh, Retired Judge Ray Deary can now go back to whatever he was doing before, being retired. I don't know. It's not a knock on him or the quality of his work in any way. It's a it's an embarrassing reversal for Judge Cannon. I mean, a lot of people are just scratching their heads over this, thinking, you know, this is the home team doing her benefactor a favor. Now, that's not always the case, as we see, as we saw most recently— in the Supreme Court ruling unanimously, including all three Trump appointees, um, that Donald Trump had to turn over his tax returns to the now, for a few more weeks, briefly controlled, Democratic-controlled, I should say, committee. I think it's House Ways and Means. And it just actually reached the hands of the committee yesterday, I think. So they've got a brief amount of time till the end of December, to do whatever they're going to do with it, which could include making it public. I think they got six years of returns. This has been a long battle. This has been going on since 2019. And so, another legal setback for the former president. This doesn't, it does affect the Justice Department probe, 
But really, a lot is riding now on what Jack Smith, the special counsel, recommends on on these two tracks, one of them being January 6th, where I would argue it's a little harder to make a case against Donald Trump, and the other being a possible obstruction charge, as well as, you know, unlawful uh, removal of top secret documents that belong to the government, even though Trump had this theory that they were his, or that he had simply declassified them by thinking about it, to quote uh, something one of his lawyers said. Um, and so while Merrick Garland will ultimately make the decision, Jack Smith could give him, you know, the kind of justification for bringing an indictment. Or, you know, it is still not impossible. But Garland will look at this. And if it's only about documents, um, may feel it's not worth putting the country through the trial of a former president. And what effect would that have on the campaign with Donald Trump being the only declared president? Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Okay, story number three. Uh, I've been following this. I didn't want to pop it for you until it actually happened. But because of the absolute fiasco, and there is no other word for what happened with the Iowa caucuses in 2020, where they could, you know, just totally screwed it up, took days to figure out who won and all of that, uh, I knew that the Democratic National Committee was going to take away the first in the nation status from Iowa. And there were different lobbying efforts going on for Michigan, for Minnesota. Um, New Hampshire obviously still wants to be first. But it's one of those things where the DNC will always defer to the president, but the president hadn't made his wishes known. Well, now he has. President Biden asking the DNC to make South Carolina the nation's first primary state followed by New Hampshire and Nevada a week later, and then primaries after that in Georgia and Michigan, according to sources quoted by the Washington Post. So that's a pretty radical rerun. Now, if you're just looking at Biden running for election, of course he wants the first primary to be in South Carolina. That's the primary he won after losing several of them that revived a candidacy that many in the media said was dead. It was embarrassing how badly Joe Biden did. He's, he's gone. He should drop out. There's no way he can win the nomination. Wins South Carolina with the help of Jim Clyburn and a substantial black vote and never looked back. Rolled to the nomination. Now, of course, New Hampshire is saying, oh, we have a state law that we have to go first, so whatever you set, we're going to go first. Now, I have mixed feelings about this for this reason. Basically, there is an argument to be made that a state like South Carolina, if not South Carolina, I mean, it could also be Michigan, let's say, 
uh, is such much more diverse. Uh, you know, it's got major cities. It's got a substantial black vote. It's got um, an industrial base. Whereas Iowa and New Hampshire had two things against them and one thing for them. One, they were both small, mostly rural, and mostly white states. And so somebody who needs to appeal in, a, in not just the primaries when you get to, you know, Super Tuesday, but in a general election to Hispanic voters, black voters, and so forth, um, they were not very diverse. However, the beauty of New Hampshire, and I'm biased here because I've covered so many New Hampshire primaries, or a state like New Hampshire, is that it's small and somebody who doesn't have great resources by you know, camping out there and meeting a lot of voters in person can break through. I'm thinking back to, and this has been true of both parties, Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, it goes back to Jimmy Carter in 1976 and Pete Buttigieg in 2020. Didn't get a lot of credit for it because the, the certification was delayed. But a guy like him, you know, small town mayor, not terribly well known, gay candidate, goes in and wins New Hampshire. And that gave him some momentum, although in the end he wasn't, didn't appeal to a broad enough cross-section. Anyway, they're going to do what Biden wants to do, whatever New Hampshire chooses to do. And Biden is saying, oh, here is uh, Biden, here's the letter. We must ensure that voters of color have a voice in choosing our nominee much earlier in the process and throughout the entire early window. We need black, brown, Asian-American, and Pacific Islander voters. Biden is saying um, that after I run again, you can do whatever you want. This is not for years and years to come. This is how I wanted it right now. And when you're president, you get your way. You absolutely get your way. Now, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, Republicans, said, hey, the DNC did not give New Hampshire the first in the nation primary and is not theirs to take away. News is obviously disappointing, but we'll still be holding our primary first. We'll see how that plays out. Here's a piece by Newt Gingrich who, if you ever have a chance to talk to him about politics, is a really smart guy. You may not like his politics. You may love his politics. But Newt has posted on his website, Republicans must learn to quit underestimating Joe Biden and that you realize how well he is doing by his own definition of success. This is in the wake, of course, of the midterms. Now, Newt covers himself by saying, look, I, like most Americans, I don't approve the job he's doing. Like virtually all conservatives and Republicans, I deeply oppose his policies. They're weakening America, straightening our enemies. Uh, I oppose woke policies. No, 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 no. However, Newt says conservatives' hostility to the Biden administration on our terms tends to blind us to just how effective Biden has been on his terms. And he says he's built a big left-wing government, socialist. Okay. Uh, Gingrich goes on to say we've underestimated him. That remember, Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan both preferred to be underestimated. Both wanted people to think of them as pleasant, but not dangerous. They found being underestimated was a major asset. When people laughed at them, they were busy achieving their goals and getting their programs implemented. Biden has achieved 
something similar. I think it's interesting that, you know, Joe Biden's been in politics forever, and he was playing the long game, and he came out and said, no, 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 the most important factors here for me to talk about in the final end to the midterms, remember the red wave, um, were democracy and abortion rights. And that's, he kind of turned out to be right. I was wrong about it. I thought he should talk about the economy. I thought he should talk about inflation. And that was already baked into the cake. All right, story number four. Washington Post has a good take on this. It gets a little complicated, but the bottom line here is that these financial tech companies that were sort of working with the federal government to make sure there was no fraud in some of the pandemic relief in small businesses looking for federal loans, they completely and totally screwed up and allowed a lot of fraud that wasted a whole lot of money. And you can hold the Biden administration accountable for this. They're supposed to be overseeing the spending of these federal dollars and, you know, giving out loans are also, you know, it means the Treasury is giving money that in some cases didn't have to be paid back, trying to get the economy on track during the economic slowdown and lockdown that accompanied uh, COVID. So, for example, one of the financial tech companies is called Blue Acorn. And they went through all the applications and they began to overlook signs of fraud. Blue Acorn Acorn isn't the only one. I'm just using, they use it as the lead anecdotal example. Investigators found that Blue Acorn collected about $1 billion in processing fees while its operators may have secured fraudulent loans of their own. This is pretty bad, right? Um, This was all laid out in a report yesterday by a House committee on the coronavirus crisis. And this probe, year and a half, ah, shared in advance with the Washington Post, so the Post had to scoop on it before it was made public, contends there was rampant abuse among a set of companies known as fintechs, that's the jargon shorthand, which jeopardized federal efforts to rescue the economy and siphoned off public funds for possible private gain. This is pathetic. You know, you're trying to help businesses when they're not getting any customers because everybody's basically bunkered down at home. And the SBA, these loans put billions of dollars at risk. Goes on and on and on. We're talking about an $800 billion program, the Paycheck Protection Program. Remember that? PPP. And it named some other companies, including Wampley and Cabbage with a K, was supposed to serve as middlemen, helping applicants complete the paperwork because it was complicated to try to get these loans. Jim Clyburn is the chair of this particular committee. This is where it gets really disgusting. Uh, They wanted to push through these PPP loans at Blue Acorn, but they created a special internal VIPPP label to ensure that the biggest borrowers could receive expedited treatment. Okay, so how serious was Blue Acorn about making sure that this was done without fraud? A Blue Acorn co-founder appeared to remark on Slack Who effing cares? And you know why they didn't effing care? Because 
It wasn't their money. They were the middlemen. Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E, missed obvious flags for fraud, incorrect tax documents, names and addresses that didn't match on applications, identities that may have been stolen, profit margins that didn't make sense. I mean, come on, red flags. This was like shining neon light. Initially or internally, its leaders dismissed these warning signs. Explaining its approach, this really pisses me off. A risk manager at Cabbage acknowledged in a separate exchange obtained by Congress that the company took a more lax view on PPP lending because the risk here is not ours. It is SBA's risk. In other words, you know, who cares? Who effing cares, right? Because it's not our money. It's the government's money. We just do what we do. We get paid. And if there's a lot of fraud, it's the federal government's fault, SBA. Absolutely disgusting. And I hope some of this money can be recovered. And I hope if there was fraud, that there'll be prosecutions. And if the, it's like the, uh, you know, when Arthur Anderson was the accountant for Enron, you know, if the middlemen who the government trusted to do the job, because, you know, the government can't do anything. They got to contract out some of this. Screwed up. Got big payday as a result. Well, that should be looked at as well. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story number five. It is hysterical to watch Sam Bankman Freed, the fallen crypto king, do this apology tour. And he had an interview yesterday that aired on Good Morning America. So George Stephanopoulos went to the Bahamas where Bankman Freed is still holed up. Remember, this is the guy who the media lionized. This is the guy who was on the cover of the business magazines. Next, that fortune cover story called him the next Warren Buffett. And now he looks like the next Elizabeth Holmes. Anyway, Stephanopoulos goes there and, you know, this guy is schlubby and awkward. And George did a good job. He asked him all the tough questions. I have no problem with that. But there was just these long, agonizing pauses when this 30-year-old guy was not only saying it wasn't my fault, but, you know, was trying to answer questions that could involve criminal liability. He said right up front that, you know, my lawyer told me not to talk. So what does he say? What's his story? What's his explanation? I really deeply wish that I'd taken on a lot more responsibility for understanding what the details were, what was going on. Yeah, your company was only worth $32 billion. Why should you uh, take responsibility for what was going on? I should have been on top of this. And I feel really, really bad and regretful that I wasn't. A lot of people got hurt, and that's on me. Yeah, people who, I mean, I've never been a fan of crypto. The whole thing has always seemed to me to be kind of a pyramid scheme. But lots of smart people said, hey, it's great. Come on in, the water's fine. Uh, I feel really bad. So he's trying to make a case that he was dumb, he was negligent, but he didn't deliberately screw anybody. And and by the way, you know, if you put your money into crypto, maybe you would have done all right, done all right if you were with Bankman Fried's company, FTX. And remember, the guy came in, the same guy who tried to clean up Enron, got rid of Bankman Fried said this, you know, he'd never seen such horrible controls. And there was this other company called Alameda, and there was a lot of self-dealing back and forth. 
Bankman himself, George Stephanopoulos asked him this. Bankman himself got a monster loan. He said, oh, that was just for me to put back into the company. It was a personal loan. The bottom line here is they were playing with other people's money. Although he, Bankman Fried took up, uh, threw out a lot of jargon to make your eyes glaze over, to make you believe, oh, there was nothing wrong with this because some of this was, uh, um, people had open accounts. I mean, you know, it makes your eyes glaze over. And that's exactly what he wants. Rather than, uh, here, here's an example. Uh, Alameda, again, this sort of, he owned both companies and his girlfriend for six months, he said, um, was nominally the CEO of Alameda, uh, had a large position open on FTX. What does that mean? It was over collateralized. What does that mean? Um, there was a market collapse that p- threatened that position quite a bit. And there was mismanagement. It wasn't my fault, dudes. You know, he comes on wearing, he's got his wild hair and he comes on wearing the hoodie. FTX had mechanisms in place by which there was allowed borrowing and lending on the platform. This is such a low. This is such a crock. Goes on and on. I failed to have someone in place who was managing that risk, who was managing that position, managing that count. I failed to have proper oversight. I'm just a dummy. I tried, but, you know, it wasn't me. I've been running FTX for the last few years. It doesn't leave a whole lot of time for a dating life for me. Yeah, that kind of, he had a whole of these denials. He didn't uh, see any illegal drug use, although he got prescription drugs so he could, you know, stay awake and work crazy hours. He didn't date much. He had a life coach on the payroll to bring him women. Come on. He's now, down, he was, the company was worth $32 billion. He's now down to 100000 and one ATM card. His own personal net worth had been $20 billion. Oh, that loan. Oh, he got a $1 billion loan. Well, I, well you know, it was generally for reinvesting, not for consumption. I'm sorry. My BS detector is just, it just fizzled out because it's so crazed by this. Um, there's something deeply wrong here. I wasn't even trying. I wasn't spending any time. Uh, I don't feel good about that. Oh, I wanted to figure out how I could have the most impact on the world, guys, and uh, how I could do the most good for the world. So that was the secret. Sam Bankman-Fried not only gave money to media companies, all of which are scrambling to explain what they're doing with the money. Shouldn't they give the money back? It was money from from investors. Um, He took up these liberal causes, gave huge amounts of money to Joe Biden and the Democrats. Now he says, oh, I gave money to Republicans too, but like nobody knew about it. Because he knew the media would like him better if he gave money to liberal causes, climate change and that sort of thing. So he wanted to be the save the world guy and the save the media guy. And the media just rolled over. This was complete um, and pathetic performance by the business press, which should have known better, which had just gone through the Elizabeth Holmes thing. So now he's on GMA and he, he talks to Andrew Ross Sarkin from The New York Times on DealBook. It's a tour in which he tries to, you know, do the schlubby thing to make you feel sorry for him. Well, I don't. The damages here, forget about FTX, the damages here to all these other people are just enormous. Of course it's his fault. And of course he may well have criminal liability. We shall see about that. Now, once again, hope you have a good weekend coming up, folks. Hope you have a chance to catch Media Buzz. It's going to be a really good show. And thanks for spending this time with me. Hope you'll subscribe. If you're not already getting this in your 
phone day by day. Apple iTunes is a good place to do it. I'm going to try to enjoy some of the weekend, too, but I'll mostly be working. We'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.